Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Today we're going to talk with Jonathan McKee. He is the author of The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. It's a great volume to help you do a better job of addressing this issue that has morphed into something quite different from perhaps uh, the days when you were in school, uh, given social media and so on. Anyway, Jonathan McKee will join us later this hour. And then I'm going to be joined by two fellow travelers, Katie and Stephanie. We'll talk about my recently concluded Indian adventure. We'll explain all of that uh, a bit later in the program, but looking forward to uh, giving you a glimpse into some of what we experience during that uh, during those travels taking a look at some of the developing news stories a federal judge has ruled against the trump administration's ban on asylum for immigrants who cross the border illegally prompting a likely legal challenge from the white house 16 house democrats have signed a letter vowing to oppose nancy pelosi as house speaker but that's not the end of that story an actress has filed a restraining order against lawyer michael avenatti days after his arrest on domestic violence charges and a war of words has erupted between president trump and a retired navy admiral who oversaw the mission to kill Osama bin Laden with the Republican National Committee siding with the president and outgoing House Speaker Paul Ryan appearing to side with the admiral. And the White House decided uh, yesterday to no longer seek to revoke CNN correspondent Jim Acosta's press pass and has introduced a new set of rules for reporters at press conferences. As we mentioned yesterday, that wasn't the first time there was a clash between the executive and a member of the press, but the latest example and the first time an expulsion resulted. Well, a federal judge in San Francisco yesterday barred the Trump administration from refusing asylum to immigrants who cross the southern border illegally. And again, that will likely prompt a uh, legal challenge from the White House. The president issued a proclamation on the 9th of this month that said anyone who crossed the southern border would be ineligible for asylum. There is a process, and he was suggesting that until you go through that process, you have uh, forfeit your right to seek asylum. U.S. District Judge John Tiger, T-I-G-A-R, uh, who was nominated by President Obama in 2012 to the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, issued a temporary restraining order after hearing arguments in San Francisco. The order came as the Wall Wall Street Journal reported that the number of migrants being allowed to cross the U.S.-Mexico border to legally apply for asylum has slowed down over the past week. According to the journal, immigration lawyers have complained in recent days that asylum seekers are being blocked from entering the U.S. from the Mexican border cities of um, uh, Juarez and others. Weeks ago, 30 families or uh, more were being allowed to cross the border daily at Yuma, Arizona, to apply for asylum. In the past two weeks, migrants and advocates say UC Customs uh, and Border Protections officials have slashed that number to one family a day at most. Meanwhile, Homeland Security officials revealed yesterday that more than 500 criminals were traveling with the migrant caravans that massed on the other side of the San Diego border crossing. Homeland Security officials say they are six, there are 6,000 people in Tijuana waiting to be processed at the uh, border there, the border crossing, with more on the way. Those who have already entered the border city in the past few days have been met with an icy reception. Migrant groups are beginning to realize they may have to wait six months for their asylum claims to be heard. The caravan arrivals are expected to continue into the week ahead. 
And 16 House Democratic lawmakers circulated a letter Monday vowing to vote against Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House, calling for new leadership, even though no challenger has stepped up to run against the California Democrat. We are thankful to Leader Pelosi for her years of service to our country and to our caucus. She is an historic figure whose leadership has been instrumental to some of our party's most important legislative achievements. The letter from both incumbent and newly elected Democrats read. However, we also recognize that in the re- this recent election, Democrats ran and won on a message of change. The letter was signed by former Pelosi challenger Representative Tim Ryan, along with other members like Representative Seth Moulton, Representative Linda Sanchez, and several incoming lawmakers like member-elect Joe Cunningham of South Carolina. But again, that is not the end of that story. And there have been developments since. And if time permits, we'll go into that. Well, an aspiring film actress on Monday filed a restraining order against lawyer Michael Avenatti just days after he was detained by police on domestic violence charges. Um, Marielle Minitui, or something very like that, an actress who appeared in Ocean's 8, filed the domestic violence restraining order on Monday in Los Angeles, the report said. It wasn't immediately clear if she was the woman who accused Avenatti of domestic violence last week. Avenatti responded to the restraining order with a tweet, I have never abused a woman or committed domestic violence. Any claim to the contrary is completely bogus and fabricated. I am a target and I will be exonerated. Now, he would like to have due process, something he wanted to deny the Supreme Court nominee. Interesting turn of events. The president versus the war hero. House Speaker Paul Ryan on Monday appeared to side with retired Navy Admiral William McRaven, the official best known for overseeing the Navy SEAL mission to kill Osama bin Laden. After President Trump questioned why McRaven took so long to find the al-Qaeda leader. He told Fox News Sunday that McRaven is a Hillary Clinton fan and an Obama backer. The Republican National Committee echoed the president's comments, tweeting that McRaven has been critical of Trump from as far back as the 2016 campaign. Ryan said in a statement on Monday that the U.S. is grateful for McRaven and all members of the military who have served in harm's way and have put country before self, according to The Hill. McRaven has repeatedly criticized the president over his description of journalists as the enemy of the American people, writing in February of last year that those comments represented perhaps the greatest threat to democracy in my lifetime. Now, that's a bit of an overstatement, uh, given the fact that he was directly involved in finding Osama bin Laden, but to each his own. Well, the White House will not seek to uh, again revoke CNN chief White House correspondent Jim Acosta's Hard press pass, as first reported earlier this week. Today, the White House fully restored Jim Acosta's press uh, press pass. As a result, our lawsuit is no longer necessary. We look forward to continuing to cover the White House, CNN said in a statement. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders also implemented a series of rules that will govern White House press conferences going forward. According to Sanders, the new rules include, one, a journalist called upon to ask a question will ask a single question and then will yield the floor to other journalists. And two, at the discretion of the president or other White House officials taking questions, a follow-up question or questions may be permitted, but you're not entitled to them. And uh, where a follow-up question has been allowed and asked, the questioner will then yield the floor. On this day in 2003, Michael Jackson is booked on suspicion of child molestation in Santa Barbara, California. He was later acquitted at trial. And on this day in 2000, lawyers for Al Gore and George W. Bush battled before the Florida Supreme Court over whether the presidential election recount should be allowed to continue. And on this day in 1976, Rocky, starring Sylvester Stallone, premieres 
in New York. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Reminder that uh, later this hour, Jonathan McKee will be my guest. The Bullying Breakthrough, real help for parents and teachers of the bullied, bystanders, and bullies. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump today submitted written answers to special counsel Robert Mueller's questions in the ongoing Russia investigation, marking a major milestone in the long-running probe as it seemingly nears its conclusion. Now, that's purely speculative. Uh, Mr. Mueller has not said anything about being nearly finished. It's just thought, well, after this length of time, it must be. Well, the president today answered written questions submitted by special counsel uh, office. Jay Sekulow, counsel to the president, said in a statement, the questions presented dealt with issues regarding the Russia-related topics of the inquiry. The president responded in writing. Well, um, added uh, Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, it has been our position from the outset that much of what has been asked raised serious constitutional issues and was beyond the scope of a legitimate inquiry. This remains our position today. The president has nonetheless provided unprecedented cooperation The special counsel has been provided with more than 30 witnesses, 1.4 million pages of material, and now the president's written responses to questions. It is time to bring this inquiry to a conclusion. Well, outside the White House uh, this afternoon, the president told reporters the announcement was coming shortly before he departed to uh, Mar-a-Lago in Florida for the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, They're all finished. The lawyers uh, have them, referring to the questions. Uh, The written answers to uh, the witch hunt, Uh, That's been going on forever. No collusion. No nothing. They've been finished. Finished them yesterday. The lawyers have them. I assure them I'll turn them in uh, today or soon. Well, speaking exclusively again on the Fox News Sunday interview this weekend, the president told host Chris Wallace that he had personally dictated his responses to his team who was uh, writing what he told them to write. Well, as Nancy Pelosi faces a grueling fight with her own uh, members to regain the speaker's gavel in January, pro-Pelosi left-wing activist groups are warning of a backlash against House Democrats who oppose her. Sixteen House Democrats on Monday circulated a letter vowing to vote against her. We are thankful, as I mentioned earlier, to Leader Pelosi, but essentially we're not voting in favor of her continued leadership. The letter was signed by former Pelosi challenger Tim Ryan and others. Pelosi must pick up a majority of the Democratic caucus next week in internal leadership um, uh, elections, then go on to win an absolute majority of the House. If 17 Democrats vote with Republicans against Pelosi on the floor, she would not have the votes needed to become Speaker. But now, with the California Democrats' leadership on the line, left-wing activist groups and um, are rather going to bat for her and warning of dire consequences for those who oppose her. Uh, we're um, we're uh, were it not rather for her skilled and effective leadership, the Affordable Care Act would not be the law today. Dems must reject attempts to defeat her and move caucus uh, to the right. Actually, it would be moving the caucus to the left. But going a step further, a MoveOn.org spokesman said, uh, speaking to the Daily Beast, that Democrats could face primary challenges at home if they vote against her. If right-wing Democrats end up helping Republicans by voting against Nancy Pelosi as speaker, they can expect to face serious backlash from the same energized and mobilized base of progressive voters that just brought Democrats a majority in the House, which certainly could extend to primaries, a spokesperson uh, told the Beast. Now, it's rather interesting they're referring to those who would oppose her 
leadership as being further to the right when, in fact, it's a more progressive left that has said we need change and we don't want Nancy Pelosi. So it's going to be a very interesting showdown next week when this issue comes up in earnest. And one of the only individuals who said she was considering running is now withdrawn. And there's some speculation that Nancy Pelosi, she was a member of the um, Congressional Black Caucus, that Nancy Pelosi may grant her that uh, that position at some point if she is given the gavel one last time. Well, two more sets of human remains were found uh, on Monday, bringing the total number killed in the devastating California wildfire to 79, a Northern California sheriff has said. Butte County Sheriff Corey Hane uh, said uh, the list of names of those unaccounted for after a deadly wildfire has dropped to around 700. That was 1,000 as recent as yesterday. He said that's about 300 fewer than what was supposed at the start of Monday. So they're hopeful that that number will continue to go down uh, because people are reporting that they are, in fact, safe rather than that their remains have been found. Authorities stress that many of the people on that list may be safe and unaware that they've been reported missing. The so-called campfire swept through the rural town of Paradise on the 8th of this month. It's destroyed nearly 12,000 homes. The fire has burned over 150,000 acres and is 70 percent contained as of Monday night. According to NPR, more than 4,700 workers are uh, also battling that blaze. The campfire has become the deadliest wildfire in California history. And U.S. stocks sold off across the board on Tuesday with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling over 600 points before trimming those declines. Losses accelerated in the final hour of trading as all major S&P 500 sectors tumbled, led by energy, industrials, financials and tech. The volatility in what is a short trading week due to Thanksgiving erased yearly gains for the Dow and S&P 500 and essentially the Nasdaq composite. As for big tech shares of Apple are officially sitting on a, in a bear market down 20% from October's record levels. As investors worry about some weakness in iPhone sales, this uh, pressured the broader tech sector as Microsoft and Twitter also joined the retreat while Amazon swung between losses and gains during that season. And the Federal Reserve is still expected to raise interest rates over the next year, but a majority of economists see the pace slowing. That's according to the latest poll by Reuters. The Fed is expected to raise again next month and three times next year. The probability of a U.S. recession in the next two years, while still low, also nudged up to a median 35 percent from 30 percent. Growth in the world's largest economy is still solid, supported by the $1.5 trillion tax cut boost, and unemployment is the lowest in nearly half a century. But growth is expected to slow more by the end of next year as a trade standoff with China shows no signs of letting up and as House Democrats uh, resume power and their opposition to the uh, Trump administration. Finally, the Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday said the public should not eat romaine lettuce as a result of a um, multi-state E. coli outbreak. At least 32 people have gotten sick and at least 13 have been hospitalized as a result of the outbreak that's believed to be connected to romaine lettuce, according to the FBI. So far, 11 states have reported cases of the outbreak, the latest um, uh, onset of which uh, was October the 31st. People should not eat romaine lettuce until more is known about the source of the contaminated lettuce and the status of the outbreak, the federal agency said. Well, the FBI, or FDA, rather, who is investigating the matter with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the state and local agencies, said they're also working alongside officials in Canada. 
A um, trace back investigation is underway to find the source of the romaine lettuce consumed by people who became ill, according to the agency, who added that the information they have at this point is too limited to make a targeted recall. At this stage of the investigation, the most efficient way to ensure the contaminated romaine is off the market would be for the industry to voluntarily withdraw product from the market and to withhold distribution of romaine until public health authorities can ensure the outbreak is over and or uh, the FDA can identify the source the specific source of that contamination. So romaine lettuce should not be concerned um, out of um, an abundance of caution due to E. coli in multi-state outbreaks. So make note of that. If you were planning your Thanksgiving table with a huge salad containing romaine lettuce, you might want to rethink that until they can uh, provide more specific information. Coming up, we're going to talk with Jonathan McKee. He's the author of The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. He's done a significant amount of research. He's also a bullying survivor himself, and his son suffered severe bullying to the point that uh, he and his wife had to change schools for the young uh, young person. So we're going to talk about the new challenges, the uh, Breadth and depth of it that's expanded significantly with the advent of um, social social media. We'll get into all of that. And then at the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with a couple of friends. We'll give you a bit of an overview of our recent trip to India. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, bullying has become an issue far too familiar to many of us, but what to do about it is the question that most of us really struggle with. Parents and teachers would love to help hurting kids, but the truth is they don't know how. I just learned this weekend that one of my family members has been relentlessly bullied to the point that the administration at the middle school she attends had to step in. She and the bullier, the person who was bullying her, have to be escorted by adults whenever they're not in the classroom now. Well, my next guest says that the reason uh, parents and teachers don't know what to do is quite simple. Bullying has completely transformed in less than a decade. Today, bullying has no boundaries. When the bell rings, kids might leave their school campus, but they can never escape the other world, that world where mockers and intimidators thrive. Ironically, they carry a a getaway to that, or rather a gateway to that uh, world right in their pockets because they see that world as an avenue of escape, but in reality, it's putting them in bondage. Well, in the new book, The Bullying Breakthrough, published by Shiloh Run Press, author and youth culture expert Jonathan McKee, provides real-world help for parents, for teachers, youth leaders, who often feel ill-equipped to deal with today's bullying culture. Dr. Jim Burns describes um, Jonathan's new book as both disturbing and incredibly helpful. Josh McDowell calls it Jonathan's most vulnerable and insightful book, an eye-opening peek into the world of bullying today and what we can actually do to prevent it. Social researcher Shanti Felton uh, says that it's an essential guide to preventing and stopping bullying behavior. Well, with chapters including Digital Hurt, The Escape Key, Meet the Principle, Real World Solutions, and more, um, uh, Dr. McKee, he shares his personal story of pain and offers a sobering glimpse into the rapidly changing world of bullies. 
Well, Jonathan McKee is the author of over 20 books, including the brand new The Bullying Breakthrough, The Teen's Guide to Social Media and Mobile Devices, The Guy's Guide to God, Girls, and the Phone in Your Pocket, and the new fiction book Bystander about a school shooting on a high school campus. He has over 20 years youth ministry experience, speaks to parents and leaders worldwide, all while providing free resources to parents on his website, The Source, number four, The Source for Parents, Com. He and his wife have three kids. They live in California, and we are so delighted to have you with us today. Thank you, uh, Jonathan McKee. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is such a difficult subject. I think when we mention the word bullying for some of our listeners, they recall having been bullied. Others recall witnessing uh, others being bullied. And then there, of course, there are the bullies themselves. You address all three groups in your book, um, The Bullying Breakthrough. Yeah, you know, it's because it's simple. Sometimes, you know, when it comes to these bullying conversations, um, it's so funny whenever I say that, bullying conversations, bullying, it's like, wait, bowling? Did you say bowling? Yeah, I got oh, a I strike or a spare. <laughs> wish we have conversations we about, about. <laughs> about being bullied. Yeah. We could be, uh, be like that. It's very often it's kind of focused on, you know, the kid that's being picked on. And, you know, I mean, there's three types of kids there. There's the bully. There's the bullied. And then there's the bystander. And that's one thing I really wanted to, you know, whenever I talk with parents about this, I say, hey, you know what, there's these three types of kids. Which, which kid is yours? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just the kid that's, you know, picking on others. It's not just the kid who's the target of this. But there's that kid who's seen this stuff going on and is kind of torn on how to respond. And so that's why we spend time talking with them as well and saying, hey, how can we dialogue with our kids about this? Because our kids are being affected by this in one way or the other. And and this is where we need to have these discussions. Now, you make the point that bullying has evolved over time and that social media plays a significant role in it. What what motivates kids to be um, more mean than they were when I was a kid? Uh, is it just because they have greater access through social media, or is there is this a cultural phenomenon that just exploits the access to social media? Well, our culture definitely celebrates rude. I mean, we we are distanced. There's that anonymity that happens with social media. You're not, you know, even in the same room staring at the person in their eyes. As you're able to almost, you know, sometimes just kind of enter these comments under your screen name of, you know, uh, of jblast367, you know, who knows who that is, right? You know, I mean, so sometimes that I think adds to it, but I think the biggest thing we're seeing that's so different, and literally this is like in the last decade, is because young people have these devices in their pockets, and according to Common Sense Media's most recent study, 89% of 12 through 17-year-olds have them in their pockets. You know, they're not, I mean, a decade ago, social media was something you had to do while plugged into a wall. And now, you know, this this is going into the bedrooms, this is going into the classrooms, this is going into the hallways. It's everywhere. And when I was interviewing people about what some of the stuff that's going on, uh, we noticed some changes. We noticed, you know, if a kid was, uh, there was this one girl I talked to who, um, she was kind of, every once in a while, like someone walked by and slam a locker or they'd pull on her hair. But then she would get a text or then she would get uh, a social media message saying, yeah, that was me who just did that. You know, so, I mean, it's it's now in this place where the, the arm of bullying has just extended to the places that used to be safe and no place is safe anymore. Yeah. Now, you write about the fact that you experienced bullying when you were a child and you're also the parent of a child who was bullied so badly that you decided to change schools uh, for your child. I can imagine this is a difficult subject to address 
but you attack it head on. Was it a challenge for you? Man, it, it was rough. I mean, you, all you got to anybody who has this book, you know, all they have to do is, uh, you know, flip over the back cover, and we put a picture of me in third grade right there, and that's because mm. when my when my baby teeth fell out and the new teeth came in, man, I, I don't think they got the memo that they were supposed to stop growing, and they just kept, they kept growing, and man, I I gave buck tooth a new name, man. I mean, it was it was when I'd walk in the room, I was a showstopper. I mean, people just they literally stopped and stared and, and I would be in the grocery store with my mom and little kids would be like, mommy, what's wrong with his teeth? You know, and you'd hear moms being like, don't stare. And I mean, and this was my life. This was day after day. And, and it was one of those things where I just, it affected me socially because I, I became um, very hard and very bitter to the constant you know, just barrage of comments and, and, and cut downs. And I was, I mean, name, name, I, there is, there is no name I have not heard that has to do with Buck Teeth. I mean, I heard it all from, you know, Bugs Bunny to Bucky Beaver to Can Opener to Chicklets. To, uh, and, and there was times, I remember at a basketball camp once, you know, kids were making fun of me and I, and I don't even know what I was going to say, but I was like, oh yeah, well, guess what I can do? And the coach even said, what, chew through wood? You know, and so, I mean, this was one of those things where, and of course, once he did that, he opened up the door, man. I mean, that was like, there might as well have been a sign that said, kick me on my back because it was, you know, for the rest of the week, it was, you know, Woody Woodchuck, come over here and chuck this wood. And I mean, because coach had given a green light, yeah. you know, on it. And um, so, I mean, that, that was my life growing up. It was, it was rough and it made me, um, it made me different socially. And as I started to interview people for this book, it kind of brought it all back because some people started to confess. They, one, they they confessed a little bit about this bitterness that they held, like, man, there's somebody I haven't seen in 20 years, and I hate them. I have dreams about them. And I confessed to my wife. I said, oh, I still, I still have dreams about this one kid, and they ain't good dreams. And, and, and another thing that came out a lot was just the – um, the social anxiety that it did in my life where I, I became socially awkward. I thought those kids are talking about me. If a kid came up and sat next to me, I was skeptical of it. So I write from that perspective, uh, kind of knowing that and seeing that. And then when I saw it happen to my son, often being the parent of that, you know, going to a principal and saying, here's what's going on. And, and the principal I had happened to be not a, really a great one. And she was just, she was, she literally, didn't hear what I said, took me on a tour and showed me all the anti-bullying posters Ugh. around the campus and, and said, oh, I guarantee you there's not bullying here when my son's coming home in tears of, you know, everybody in the classroom laughing at him and, and not allowing him to take part in any of their games. And this, I mean, it was, it, it, it was awful. And um, so I, I share some of that story, but I try not to leave that there. I try to say, okay, what can we actually do to make a dent in this? What, what can we do to make a difference? Yeah. The subtitle is Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and uh, Bullies. Now, let's just take a moment and talk about the repercussions because the temptation might be, you know, just don't listen to them. Just let it roll off your back. Don't, you know, yeah. no, don't take it in. And not to take it as seriously as we ought. You write about the repercussions that bully kids are more socially tentative, sometimes skeptical of social situations, fearful of rejection, mm-hmm. um, uh, prejudice perhaps towards certain social circles and so on. How seriously should we take bullying? And I know there are different levels of it, um, but for the person who's tempted to say, oh, just get over it, what do you say? 
Well, it's hard because because a lot of adults do tend to minimize. You know, well, you know, well, well, what did you do to you know get them mad at you, or what did you, you know, or, or we simply well just ignore them. Well, it's, it's I'm gonna tell you, it's it's hard to ignore the class when the entire class is laughing at you. Mm-hmm. And as I heard these stories, and I started to hear the same thing over and over again, the the difference too before answering that question is the fact that it is now magnified because no place is safe. This has now entered the bedroom at night, you know, because they're on their device and cyberbullying victims. I mean, bullying victims are already enough. They're twice as likely to attempt suicide as someone who's not. Cyberbullying victims are three times as likely. I mean, this is a new kind of hurt. And everywhere I go, um, like I would, I, I'm on campus a lot, and, and I was on campus just at a middle school just a week ago, and I asked them the same question I ask whenever I'm on campus because I come and do a lot of school assemblies and I'll, and I'll talk with you know the principal before I speak and I'll, I'll kind of say tell me what this looks like and it's it's amazing because across the country it doesn't matter what state I am in I will hear the same story that it almost seems like it's a rubber stamp story but it happens on every campus and so often it's like girl is pressured by guy to to share a, a sexy pic and then the guy ends up once they break up a week later, a month later, a year later, it doesn't matter when, you know, sharing that pic with all these friends and going, look at her, look what she did. And, man, these girls, we've seen suicide for sure, usually switching schools or something because now she's walking through the hallways. Everybody's looking at her and pointing and, oh, my gosh, there she is. And um, this is this is what it is today. I mean, this is, this is what it's got, you know, what it's come to. It's not yesterday's bullying. So we, I mean, we got to absolutely take this seriously and we've got to learn what, what, you know, how to engage our kids because even if our kid might not be a bully or bullied, so many of them, uh, a, a report came out today from Pew Research. I got an email in my inbox today saying that 59% of young people have experienced cyberbullying on one level or another, and 35% of 15 to 17-year-old girls alone have been sent a picture, an explicit picture, that they didn't request or they just were sent this. So, I mean, this is the world our kids are growing up in, and we Mm. need to dialogue with them about this and how to respond. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan McKee. The book is titled The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan McKee. He's the author of The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. Um, let's talk about the real help that these adults can provide to those who are being bullied. And I have to say this is an, an essential resource for helping adults to deal with this and, and helping young people. Where do they need to begin in addressing um, the concerns of bullying when a child, a teenager, a college student, for that matter, is being uh, harassed and bullied? That's a great question, Georgina, and I, and I like that you actually even worded it by saying, where do we need to begin? Because I think what we tend to do as adults is we rush to fix the situation. And I think a lot of adults probably could recognize this situation. I know, I, I know my wife would, would probably tell me that there's times where she comes home and tells me about her day, and she's like, oh, I was frustrated with this and that. And I think the typical husband response in a situation like that is, oh, yeah, yeah, well, here's what you should do. You should do this, 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 and this. And my wife will sometimes be like, 
you know, Jonathan, I, I, I really wasn't looking for someone to tell me what to do. I was, I was kind of just looking for someone to listen, you know, and I hear that from a lot of, mm-hmm. from a lot of wives. And I think we, as men, we've, if, if we're smart, we kind of learned, Hey, you know what? We need to just listen. Well, as parents, we need to do the same thing. Sometimes our kids actually aren't looking for a fix. They're looking for a friend. So where it starts to answer your question is, yeah, sure. There's, there's all kinds of things we can do. I mean, I ended up changing schools, you know, you know, for my son and it actually worked. It was a big help, but that's not where we started. You have to start with empathy. You have to start with listening and every expert out there will say, man, you know, this kid is feeling alone and anxious and like nobody cares, nobody understands. And so if you can start there by just, seeking to understand and not go, well, wait, what did you do? Or don't worry about it, dismissing, or here's what you got to do, fixing. Instead going, wow, that must have hurt. It sounds like you felt alone. And then saying things like, I'm just so glad you trusted me with this. Thanks for telling me. Because more than anything else, we want this kid who's felt alone and like nobody cares or understands to feel like somebody's noticing them somebody cares and somebody's with them through this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this idea of noticing because the ideal situation is the kid walks up to you and says, look, I'm being bullied at school. And then you can begin to address it. Oftentimes uh, with a teacher, for example, bullying might be taking place, but you don't witness it firsthand or you're not really aware. How can we become better um, at noticing what's happening when a child isn't just coming right to our face and saying, this is what's happening? No, great question, Georgina. And I'll even push it further because you said when a kid comes up and asks, sadly, most kids aren't coming mm-hmm. up and telling it. Most kids are not. In fact, most of the kids I interviewed said, I didn't tell anyone because I know it would only make it worse. Yeah. So there's this distrust. There's kind of this we, they, I don't want to do it. So you're right. We need to keep our eyes open for some of this stuff and we need to notice. And again, this isn't so we can freak out if we see one thing. For example, one of the warning signs might be um, we notice a, a change in eating habits. Well, well, guess what? You know, if our kid's not eating dinner, don't freak out. Maybe they just ate an entire bag of Doritos up in their room, okay, when they were scrolling, you know, their Insta posts. Um, but if you start to notice a lot of these, if you notice them maybe verbalizing insecurities, you know, uh, mom is talking to her daughter and, hey, why don't you wear these shorts? These are cute. Uh, oh, I don't, I don't want to wear those shorts. My, my legs look fat. Well, you know, where did they get the ideas that their legs look fat? Now, this is tough. And here's the reason, again, where we don't jump to conclusions because we live, now live in a world where self-esteem is an all-time low. Because young people are walking around with this real-time barometer of self-esteem in their pocket, their smartphone, right? And, and it's the thing that tells them exactly how unliked they are and how unpretty they are because they don't look as good as Kylie Jenner or whoever it is that they're following on social media who has way more likes, you know, and is way prettier. And so a lot of young people are already feeling bad about themselves. But if you hear them start to verbalize these insecurities in addition to maybe you also, maybe you notice a change in their friend groups. How come you're not hanging out with Madison anymore? Oh, I, I just, I just don't hang out with her. You know, maybe they want to, you know, you talk about, Hey, let's go here. Oh, I don't want to go there. Maybe they want to avoid school or maybe you even notice the repercussions of them avoiding school. You notice declining grades where they used to have good grades. Maybe at sports, you actually even hear some other kids kind of making some jests, not the typical on the baseball field, fun, hey batter stuff, but, you know, 
some some actually kind of aggressive jests or teasing. Um, you might notice some of this. If you start to notice several of these things, not just one of these, um, these are the things that we're, you know, if we open up our eyes and look at these things, maybe we can try to figure out how can I dialogue and get them to share some of this and, and just talk about, hey, how was school? Hey, at practice, it seemed kind of rough today. Tell, tell me more about that. You know, uh, you know, that kid Danny there was kind of, kind of throwing stuff. Is, is that typical? How'd that make you feel? And again, doing a lot of listening, mm-hmm. not lecturing, but trying to look and notice if we notice any of these things. Now we're talking about the book, The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents, Teachers, and the Bullied Bystanders and Bullies. Uh, so this is a great resource that goes into a much more detail than our conversation would reflect. But let's talk for just a moment about bullies. I know that when I found out this weekend about a member of my family who's being bullied in middle school, my first thought was, I'm just going to drive over to the school and punch this little girl in the face. <laughs> now, that, that's not an option. I'm there. <laughs> so what what do you say to and about bullies when you're advising parents and teachers? Oh, well, this is tough, and, and, and it's interesting. One thing I do share in the book is, I mean, I had a kid that was bullied, and I had a kid who actually admitted to me that she was a bully. Um, you know, my son was bullied, I mean, terrible, and, and I did, my wife and I, there were times where we're like, okay, we're going to go down, and we're going to start beating up fifth graders. I mean, you, 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 you become, as a parent, you become irrational because you don't, you know, you turn to mama bear. You don't want your baby being hurt, and when you see that, it, it destroys you. But the interesting thing was hearing from my daughter as she looked back, and I talked to her as I was writing this book, and she's 21 now, and she says, Dad, I, I think I was a bully. She goes, I, I honestly, when I think back to fifth and sixth grade, she says, I wanted to be like so bad. And she goes, when I got in with that popular crowd, she goes, they, they were mean. And, and I wanted to fit in and I wasn't about to not do what they were doing. She says, so I was mean. And she named specific kids she was mean to, a kid that she actually years later ended up going back to and just begging for forgiveness and said, I was so mean to you. I'm so sorry for what I did. And for her, it was so easy because she was feeling bad about herself. And so she chose to raise herself up by, you know, raising herself up by lowering others. And, and that's, that's literally the textbook definition yeah. of bullying, uh, this aggressive behavior that's repeated multiple times, but it's always a power play. It's a, I'm going to lower you down so I feel better about myself. And, and we as parents, we can look for some of the signs, and that's why I include a bunch of the signs in the book, but where we notice maybe some of this low self-esteem, but all, not only that, but the self-centeredness, this kind of lack of empathy towards others, maybe even angry outbursts, becoming frustrated with you know their own personal problems, but kind of taking it out on others, or, or sometimes it comes out in attention-seeking behaviors. But we need to watch and, and consider that possibly our own little Brittany might not be that innocent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, again, our, our conversation doesn't give us sufficient time or um, space to discuss all of the, not only this, the ideas of how bullying is expressed, but how parents and teachers can address it. But this really is a great book. In fact, I'm planning on taking my copy over to my family members' uh, parents 
um, right after this interview. Again, the title is The Bullying Breakthrough, Real Help for Parents and Teachers of the Bullied, Bystander, Bystanders rather, and Bullies. It's been recommended by people whose names you would recognize, who highly recommend it. And this is a great place to start, and I would encourage you to, uh, to pick up a copy. Now, as I mentioned, you also provide free resources for parents on your website, the source, the number four, thesourceforparents.com. Yeah, yeah, and that's just a great place where if parents have questions about the normal parenting stuff today, like should I give my kid a device or what if they've got a device and how do I manage that and, you know, what's this look like? We we write about this stuff all the time. It's just a free website for parents. Um, jump on the source for parents.com. There's this whole section called Parenting Help, and it's just article after article dealing with many of these issues. Well, again, thank you so much for talking with us today, and uh, I hope our listeners will take advantage of the opportunity to pick up The Bullying Breakthrough. Have a great night. Again, Jonathan McKee, author of The Bullying Breakthrough. Uh, Up next, we have news and traffic here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk with two of my fellow travelers on my recently concluded Indian adventure. Stick around. We'll tell you more about it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. So happy to have you with us because, as I mentioned earlier in the week, today I'm going to take some time and tell you a little bit about my adventure in India. <laughs> now, during that time, we had the opportunity to see the Taj Mahal. We saw the gateway to India. That's where the British first arrived and where they were welcome to leave, (laughs) and so many other things. But I have to tell you, as fascinating and colorful and interesting as Indian culture is, that wasn't the thing that really stuck uh, in my memory as my... um the fondest things that I remember about India. So I invited a couple of my fellow travelers, Katie and Stephanie, to join uh, me today to talk a little bit about our reflections on the trip. And I have to tell you, because um, India Partners works with uh, folks on the ground in India and circumstances can be very difficult for them in the places they serve and in the ways that they minister, we're going to be deliberately vague about some of the specific locations and names and titles of ministries. But I think you'll get a general idea of what we had the opportunity to witness and participate in. So we hope you will be encouraged and inspired because, as I've mentioned here so many times before, God is always about doing much more than we can see. And we have to trust because we know God's heart that he is busy doing things uh, far beyond the headlines that we might read. So, um, Katie, I just want to welcome you. And Stephanie, who is uh, talking with us from Texas. Welcome, Stephanie. (laughs) It's good to have you. you both with us. Thank you. Now, let me first just ask each of you, I'll start with you, Katie, um, your personal call to India. What is it about India that really has uh, tugged on your heart and um, prompted you to really focus on ministry there? Well, I always tell people that it is all my dad's fault when he ruined my life by taking (laughs) me to India back in 2003. And he's a pastor and he'd been recruited by a number of people to... um, take Bibles to India way back in the 70s. And I had the first opportunity to go um, in 2003, and it absolutely turned my world upside down. The people are beautiful. The culture is fascinating and so different from ours, but so amazing to learn about. And the food is obviously another great draw. But what really stuck me was how God was moving in India, the incredible miracles that I saw God do. And I'm a PK. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. So I was 
fascinated by what God was doing, physical miracles, spiritual miracles, things that I was witnessing with my own eyes that I wasn't seeing so much in the local church. And so that really bit me hard. And I've been excited to go back ever since. Mm. Now, Stephanie, I met you on this trip. So this was our first encounter with one another. And I fell in love with you early on. But you have been a missionary in a number of places. Tell tell us a little bit about what um, holds your heart in, in regards to India. I love being able to encourage people. And wherever you go where there's a deep need, there's great opportunity for encouragement. So that just always attracts my heart, no matter where the Lord sends me, whether mm-hmm. it's here in, in the States or anywhere abroad. just love to be able to encourage. Yeah, and you are a gifted encourager. Uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell some of the stories of the people that we met without disclosing much information about them. But one of the churches there, one of the ministries uh, that we had the opportunity to meet and work with, uh, the pastor was watching the news, much like we watch the news on a regular basis. And he had heard about a disaster that had occurred that led to a remote tribe um, being moved to an area where they were not necessarily welcome and there weren't any services to provide for them. And the news story really focused on the need of this tribe. Now, you and I, when we watch the news, we might think, wow, that's really bad. Maybe I'll call the Red Cross and send a couple of coins. But this pastor decided that he was compelled by his uh, his love for Christ and love for people, that he needed to do something. And we had the opportunity to meet the tribe and to witness the fruit that was born as a consequence. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I think one of the amazing things about India in general is still there are very, very remote tribal people living very secluded lives in these villages that we drove hours yes. on some really bumpy roads. We were sacrificing our backs for Jesus, I have to and tell you. Backsides, yes, and our backsides. Yes, and our backsides. The hours we drove to get to these people. And the incredible thing is that as they were introduced to these people that came in the name of a God that they hadn't heard yet, and they were bringing practical help. And so for this particular group, they were very, very in desperate need of water, clean water. And I'd actually been to this village a few times before and have watched them go down miles into a ravine to get dirty water and bring it back up. It's the women typically doing this, putting those pots on their heads. You can imagine this, putting it on their heads, walking all the way up this ravine just for a day's worth of water. And what this partner here in uh, India did was meet this basic need of getting clean water to this village. And this is one of the great things about India Partners. They are looking for ways to encourage, bless, and love people in very practical, demonstrative ways. And this partner that we have there was able to drill wells in their area. Then they were bringing clean water education on hygiene training and how do we, if you can't get clean water readily, what do you do? Mm -hmm. How do you clean it? How do you boil it? So it is uh, potable water. And how do we take care of ourselves so that we don't get dehydrated and the, the proper way to do food and nutrition within the realm that they have available to them? So the practical education and training then leads this open door to tell me why are you doing this? 
And when the pastor in this area gets to say the real reason is because of Jesus Christ, then that piques their interest more and gives a way for the gospel to be shared. Mm. In one of these remote villages, and we visited a couple of them, uh, there had been one convert. One woman had come to faith in Christ, and that had essentially ostracized she and her family. But while we were there, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, Stephanie, her husband decided, you know, I've seen a significant, dramatic change in my wife's life. She had a, an addiction to alcohol, and he decided, you can't leave until I have that same kind of encounter. Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, that was so amazing. Um, so the meeting was being held at their house, outside of their house, and, and the whole village turned out, and we had a, a great time health training and and the, the men had their time together. And he he asked for prayer before we left. And um, I just remember asking, what, what are we praying for? And they said, you know, he wants to be free from alcohol. And so we started praying. And um, boy, did he have an encounter with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we... We don't know what all happened, but we know something significant happened. It was very obvious in the way he even physically responded that he something really significant happened. And um, everybody was standing around watching, and that was really cool. So they, they, they could tell something was happening, too. And that was significant because he was one of the, or maybe the village elder, which is a significant yeah. role. His wife was the first and only convert. Uh, in that community. And this really opened the door uh, in ways that um, had not been opened before. So it was just such a privilege to be a part of a group of people to lay hands on this man and to pray for him Mm -hmm. and to see God demonstrate his love and power in a way that um, definitely had an impact on, on this individual. It just was such a blessing to be a part of that. Another of the partners, and we've talked a lot here on KPDQ about the red light district and our listeners have supported efforts to minister to women and their children there. Another of the partners ministers to women in the red light district along with their children. And that really, it's a long-term project. It's a difficult place to be. It's a difficult place to work. And yet they are bearing fruit. We were there in the red light district because of the investment of time and effort and relationship building that they had done. Um, Let me ask you, Katie, to talk a little bit about the ministry to the women there as well as their children. Yeah, I have been really honored to be a part of this since uh, 2008 was my first trip visiting this particular area. And they have six significant red light areas that our partners are working in. Three of them, they've got deep, deep partnership with the community. And it has taken years for them to really establish relationship with brothel owners pimps and the commercial sex workers themselves. And I think their tactic is brilliant. And this is what India Partners really supports. It is going in, establishing relationships with key people in the community. And then where are we meeting basic needs? And they started with reaching out to the women and their children in particular, because obviously there are many kids that are roaming around these areas. And what our partners saw was this need for while the moms are sleeping because they've been working all night and sleeping during the day, while they're sleeping during the day, what are the kids doing? They're running around with nothing to do. So they started a school and in the school, they can come five days a week and they get a nutritious meal. 
they learn English, which is a really key skill for them to know, I can get out of this community. I don't have to stay here because I'm getting educated into a new role that I have vision for my life. So the school is a really key thing. Then they've just developed these little community centers. So it's a small cement room where at least once a week, sometimes more, they have counselors, staff that go in and they're roaming around the red light areas, talking, just sitting down like you and I would Mm -hmm. having a cup of coffee or tea or chai uh, with a, with a commercial sex worker and talking about what their challenges are. Do you have a health struggle? How's your nutrition? Do you need to see a doctor? I think you've got a fever. How can we help connect you with resources? And then they invite them into this community room. And once a week or more, they've got Bible studies going on. They will talk with them about um, women's issues. And when we were there, it was really fun because we got to do some women's health education training. Mm -hmm. And just woman to woman, we sat there talking about, you know, basic things like hot flashes. (laughs) (laughs) And really opening up with them about how do we care for ourselves and it's important to them because health to them is everything. That's that's their income. So they've got to stay healthy and take care of themselves. And it's, it's an interesting um, relationship that gets built because there can't be judgment about what they do. For them, it's a profession. And they are so happy to have somebody coming in and communing with them, building relationship, helping their children, giving them health and nutritional advice, and then, of course, offering to pray with them, which leads to an open door for the gospel. Yes, in fact, we met one woman, and we'll talk about that after the break, who came out of the sex industry, the sex trade. She has her own business, and this is the the fruit of, of the work that's been going on there. We do need to take a quick break. I'm Georgine Rice. We're talking with Katie and Stephanie. We're talking about the trip we recently returned from in India. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show about 21 minutes after five o'clock. I've got Katie with me in studio. Stephanie's way down yonder in Texas, and they both were uh, travelers with me and uh, several others as well from uh, around the country uh, as we went to India just seems like minutes ago, but I guess it was about a week or so uh, when we returned. I just mentioned briefly uh, one of the women that we met in the red light district whose life had been dramatically transformed, and she remains in that area. Um, But she uh, has a business of her own and was able to provide is self-sufficient by other means. It's an uncommon thing, but but yeah, it was the thing that was awesome for me. As I mentioned, I've been there many, many times. And this was the first time that our partners allowed us as a group. Mm -hmm. And we had a very, very tall male in our group um, walk through the red light district just openly. And almost like do little mini house visits and peek our heads in and wave hello. And it was very obvious that the ladies were there waiting. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, mid, late afternoon, and they were waiting to start their evenings. And we came upon this one woman's house who was so excited to see us and our hosts that were there guiding us through. And she made us come into her little cement room like it was tiny. And we sat down on her little bed and she had her TV on and she was obviously cooking and making Mm -hmm. something. And so it was explained to us that she had used to work in the trade and the partners we worked with there helped her see that she didn't need to do that anymore, helped her start a small business. And now she makes food, uh, fresh food and sells it daily and is earning an income that way and helping to support her family. And it was just a joy to be able to see her in her transformed new life. 
and still working in the area, but just in a new way. Yeah. And yeah. what a bright, shiny example that she is to everybody in the community that there's a way out, girls. Like, you don't have to do this. And I'm living proof that you can make a living doing something else. I think one of the things that really touched our heart were the children of these women uh, who were part of the day program that we had participated in. And I didn't look up once, I don't think, in, uh, at, in at which time I didn't see Stephanie surrounded by children, not just sitting next to them, but I mean surrounded by uh, by children. I know they really touched your heart as they touched all of ours, Stephanie. What are your thoughts about the children and the programs that provide for them an opportunity to just be kids in the safety of a a classroom setting in which they sing and dance and, and just have an opportunity to experience the love of Jesus? I think it is so amazing. It, it's so great that they can get a perspective of another kind of life. Because if you grow up in one thing, that's all you know, obviously. So to to be somewhere else and be exposed to something different, something better, I, I just feel like it gives them hope for for a better future. And now, I, it's just wonderful to be with them and get, help them experience that, be a part of them experiencing that. Yeah, it was such a joy. Uh, one day we were at one of these little day centers where kids were uh, enjoying their time together in a classroom setting. The next day we had gone to a, a ministry where um, young girls, and there was a, a similar uh, ministry for boys, um, where they are given a, um, guardianship, the ministry is given guardianship over these children because their mothers recognize that this situation is not healthy for my child. And it takes a tremendous amount of love and care for a mother to say, I'm going to relinquish to some degree um, my parental authority to allow my child to live in a safer environment. And we had been with one of these little girls uh, the morning of uh, one day, the following day, we saw her come into this ministry for the very first time and witness what that was like for her. We knew where she had come from and we were seeing where she was going to. Yeah, I think for me, that was one of the highlights of our trip yes. was being there and welcoming her. And this uh, the place we were at is a safe home for women, of, uh, sorry, girls of trafficked women. And these girls obviously had such an affinity for her because she was her. I mean, they were her yes. not too long ago, and they knew exactly what she was rescued from. And, you know, you'd think if a child, she's six, was taken from her parents, and both her parents were alive, and she was living with both of her parents, but it was a very abusive and very risky situation. Um, you would think even a child in a risky situation would be um, – downcast, scared, um, not quite sure what to do with herself. But boy, she came in there and was beaming from ear to ear and then surrounded now by 12 brand new sisters, hugs and kisses. And finally, the house mom had to like pull them off and go, okay, okay, <laughs> let the girl breathe. And uh, showing her around and showing her her new bed and where she could put her things and giving her new clothes. It was just I mean, Jesus in action. It was right like there. watching a flower open. Mm. You could see her move rather slowly into the place. And then her new sisters, as you pointed out, they approached her one by one. They gave her a little touch on her face and expressed to her, you are welcome mm -hmm. here. You are one of us. You belong with us. Mm -hmm. And it was just wonderful to see that. And we were there for maybe an hour or so and watched this whole thing unfold. 
it was just such a sweet thing. And I know that for KPDQ listeners, Mm -hmm. these are the kinds of things when you have supported India Partners, this is what you have supported. And it was such a blessing to me. And I can hardly wait for our next India Partner Radiothon. Uh, because I got to see firsthand what we've been talking about. I've talked about the red light district. I've talked about some of these ministries to young children and the women who um, are in these areas, but I've seen them firsthand. I've met the ministry leaders and seen the work that they do. And one of the things that was a little embarrassing to me was when I was identified as being connected to the radio fundraising events, the gratitude that was expressed to me, it was embarrassing because I knew they were expressing that to all of you and not not to me personally. Um, but their gratitude was was so moving. They are um, outstanding leaders. These are men and women who've made tremendous sacrifices to minister in very difficult situations. They are faithful. They um, are resourceful and they are grateful. And that really touched my heart. And I promised them uh, that I would express that to KPDQ listeners, because these are people who recognize that your partnership and appreciate uh, the role that you are playing to make what they do possible. So what a joy that was for me. And, I, you know, during the Radiothon, I'll have an opportunity to describe maybe in more detail some of the things that I witnessed. But that really ministered to my heart. And I thought, I can hardly wait to go home and tell my people. <laughs> it was a real blessing. We saw along the way, we saw uh, some of the uh, wells that KPDQ listeners helped to uh, to underwrite. That was thrilling. We stopped and went into a village, and there it was. I thought, oh, I know all about it. I felt like I wanted to write my name on it and <laughs> write the station call letters on it because this was part of what KPDQ listeners have done, and I was right there to see it. Yeah. I mean, the listeners' impact is everywhere. Everywhere we went, you could see where somebody from this area had a, had some sort of an impression. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we conveyed before our time is up is that the investments that KPDQ listeners have made, the prayers that they have prayed over this ministry, it's reaping a harvest. And while we're not talking about large numbers, we're talking about a deep work that's uh, being done in the hearts of, of men and women who are being ministered to, to boys and girls, and they are seeing the love of Jesus firsthand. And I just wanted to say thank you to them and thank you to India Partners for faithfully um, providing these opportunities for us to make an impact in a place around the world where most of us will never have the opportunity to go. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephanie, let me ask you, um, from all of our experiences together, is there one that stands out as your favorite? Ooh. Hmm. Yeah, I know that's like You can say being with me kid? and Georgine was the best <laughs> ever. <laughs> um... I know yeah, that's that, like asking which is that, your favorite that, that kid. Is, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> um, there was, I, I think praying for that for the village elder probably was mm. that I just I realized that we didn't know that he was an elder at that that time when we prayed for him. We thought he was just you know a regular guy there, and then we found out that he was the village elder, and I I understood at that point that. Jesus just came to town because he's the man of influence and God got a hold of his heart that day. I know yeah, he did. Yes. So I, I feel like something broke loose for that entire village that day. And I'm just really excited to hear in the future about what happens there because I know it's going to be good. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. 
Well, we spent two weeks in India, and essentially what we did was we dropped a seed here and we dropped a seed there, and we're confident that others will water because we've seen those who are in ministry faithfully doing the work. And what a joy it was to see firsthand what we've been talking about and what KPDQ listeners have been supporting. And I just want to thank India Partners for the opportunity to have been a part of this incredible team of people that included Katie and uh, Stephanie, who... um, Stephanie, you're really not going to be rid of me because <laughs> this trip just cemented my heart to yours. So be prepared yeah, for, so <laughs> for, for friendship. Thank you both for taking the time to share just a little bit of uh, what we experienced in India. Thank you for having us. It thank was really you. a joy and a pleasure. And thanks, Stephanie. God bless. I'm, I'm so glad. Enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. I can hardly believe it. I still haven't gotten the turkey and all the stuff that goes along with it, as uh, Dan Rice and I are hosting Thanksgiving this year. And as we look back over the previous, um, well, 11 months, if we include this one, It's been kind of a rough year for a lot of people, but I want to tell you, it could have been worse. Scientists are now telling us that um, AD 536 was the worst year to be alive. So if you think it was rough this time around, it could have been worse. A massive volcanic eruption that set famine, plague, and economic upheaval in motion made the year AD 536 the worst in human history, according to an historian quoted in Science Magazine. So there you have it. Be thankful. Well, at a Harvard workshop this week, he and his team revealed that a recent study of a Swiss glacier gave them their newfound precision. Examining ice core samples, a team of scientists led by medieval historian Michael McCormick and glacialist, I guess it's glaciologist, um, Paul Mayweski, or something like that, determined that a volcano in modern day Iceland erupted in 536, less than a century after the sack of Rome and the beginning of the Dark Ages. While the resulting plume of ash covered much of the northern hemisphere, weakening the sun, causing global temperatures to plummet over the over one degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. It was the coldest period in over 2000 years. Uh, It was the beginning of one of the worst periods to be alive, if not the worst year. Within the decade, two or more eruptions further worsened the climate, spreading crop failures and famine. One Byzantine historian remarked that the sun gave forth its light without brightness like the moon during the whole year. An Irish chronicler's noted uh, the failure of bread from the year 536 to 539. Beginning in 541, the so-called Plague of Justinian then swept through much of the Eastern Roman Empire, killing 35 to 55 percent of the population, plunging Europe into economic stagnation. By examining lead deposits used to make silver coins, the study deduced that the economic consequences would extend for 100 years. The 7th century A.D. also saw the rise of Islam and the decline of the Byzantine Empire. It could be worse. Now, I always I'm always reluctant to say, you know, to look at someone else and say, well, at least you're not that bad off in order to base my gratitude on it. But I'm just, you know, giving you a little historical context that while things have been rough and people are a little bit apprehensive about getting together with family because, well, you know what might come up in the course of our conversation, it could have been worse. So if you're looking for something to be thankful for, be grateful that you didn't have to uh, survive A.D. 536. 
Well, for much of the 19th century, if we can fast forward, Thanksgiving was only celebrated by New Englanders and Northwestern transplants in the upper Midwest and in New York. Without the dogged activism of Sarah Josepha Hale, a novelist, a poet, and an editor of Goldie's Ladies Book, a lifestyle magazine with an impressive pre-Civil War circulation of 150,000. That's impressive. Thanksgiving may never have become the national holiday that it is today. Sometimes referred to as the godmother of Thanksgiving, Ms. Hale, whose other enduring cultural contribution is the popular nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, wrote thousands of letters and editorials promoting a national day of Thanksgiving before President Abraham Lincoln adopted the idea in 1863. Behind every good man with a great idea is a good woman. Well, between George Washington's 1789 Thanksgiving proclamation and Lincoln's, no president had issued such a proclamation, nor had Congress, which did not recognize the holiday until 1941, though many states and localities designated their own days of Thanksgiving. Well, Hale saw Thanksgiving as an important supplement to the nation's principal civic holiday, Independence Day. And while Independence Day celebrates the birth of our nation, our founding fathers, or the nation's founding fathers, my dad lived in Portland, and our founding principles, Thanksgiving celebrates the origins of the American people, family, and faith in God. You might have lost that in the 21st century, but that's where it all started. As Hale wrote in 1852, the 4th of July is the exponent of independence and civil or civic oh, civil freedom. Thanksgiving Day is the national pledge of Christian faith in God, acknowledging him as the dispenser of blessings. That was in 1852. Non-denominational faith in the providential God was a prominent component of Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation, as you might recall, as it had been in Washington's first proclamation, and it has remained so in nearly every presidential co- proclamation since. And while Independence Day celebrates the freedom of our nation, Thanksgiving celebrates the faith that prevents that liberty from degenerating into lasciviousness or licentiousness. What was that interview we did yesterday about the language? And while Independence Day celebrates our nation's sovereignty, Thanksgiving reminds us that God should be the source of our highest devotion. Well, Ms. Hale, she envisioned that a nationwide celebration of Thanksgiving would also help bind the nation together more tightly. Living under the same constitution and the same federal government was, in her estimation, not enough to forge one people from America's diverse inhabitants and distinct regions. We might want to revisit that in the 21st century. As she wrote, everything that contributes to bind us in one vast empire together, to quicken the sympathy that makes us feel from the icy north to the sunny south, that we are one family, each a member of a great and free nation, not merely the unit of a remote locality, is worthy of being cherished. We have sought to reawaken and increase this sympathy, believing that the fine filaments of the affections are stronger than laws to keep the union of our states sacred in the hearts of our people. Thanksgiving, Hale believed, would strengthen the fine filaments of affection by spinning a shared American origin myth from a distinctly regional history. Plymouth Rock would become the cradle of the American people, not just New Englanders. The pilgrims would be scrubbed clean of their... Um, uh, religious uh, regionalism, rather, and become embodiments of shared American values, courage, fortitude, faith, goodwill and charity. The pilgrims were better raw materials for this sort of uh, thing than other early colonists. The settlers, rather, of the Jonestown colony were the pilgrims equals in courage and 
a perseverance, but their purposes were more mercenary than messianic. They sought cheap land and fortune. Now, there's not anything necessarily wrong with that, but they didn't serve as well as the pilgrims. Well, as the descendants of Jamestown settlers pushed up the Charles River, they did not build townships brimming with civic virtue as the pilgrims did. Instead, they built plantations, worked first by indentured servants and later by African slaves. My forebears. Also, unlike the Jamestown settlers who were overwhelmingly single men, the pilgrims came across the sea with families in tow, making the Plymouth uh, colony not just a civic association and American grit, but also a fine representation of domestic life. Well, for Ms. Hale, recognition and reinforcement of the family was central to the Thanksgiving holiday. She wrote, it is a festival which will never become obsolete, for it cherishes the best affections of the heart, the social and domestic ties. It calls together the dispersed members of the family circle and brings plenty, joy and gladness. Well, Thanksgiving is a celebration of domestic ties. Rarely do extended families come together to revel in Independence Day fireworks and cookouts, parades and pool parties. Adults generally stay in the towns and cities they have moved to. If they travel, um, it is to the shore, not over the river and through the woods. This seems natural. Family life has little to do with the historic events or the principles of government we uh, commemorate on the 4th of July. But for Hale, and evidently for Lincoln also, the Civil War emphasized the need to strengthen the strained filaments of affection. Buttress divided and decimated families and remember God's painfully obscured providence. But the dimensions of civil society, the Thanksgiving buttresses, shared cultural attachment, faith in the family, are critical to a Republican people in both peaceful and tumultuous times. Now, lest you think I've uh, waxed uh, political, we are uh, one nation under God. We are a republic, not a democracy, just making the point. Well, our nation, to a greater extent than most, relies on a flourishing civil society. Our constitutionally limited government, at least in principle, permits society to develop along its own trajectory, for good or for ill, making family and religious institutions critical sources of moral training. Americans do not share a common ancestry or an ethnicity, so building a shared historical narrative is all the more important to the sense that we are one people. For these reasons, Lincoln was wise to make Thanksgiving an official holiday, the holiday we will celebrate, at least most of us, on Thursday as a family. Well, the White House created a, a Twitter poll for fans to vote for the lucky bird that would be this year's pardoned turkey. Well, the president did, in fact, pardon a turkey today. Uh, The White House said, which turkey should be pardoned during the National Thanksgiving turkey pardoning ceremony? Well, after the pardoning, peas and carrots will live at Virginia Tech's Gobbler's Rest exhibit. 50% of Americans voted for peas, 50% for carrots. Those were the names, of course, of the turkeys. And although there's much speculation over just who the was the first president to actually pardon the poultry experts include um, including the national Turkey Federation uh, credit former president Her- George Herbert Walker Busher Bush rather for starting the official tradition. Now I would have thought it started much sooner, but the formalities of pardoning a Turkey gelled in 1989 when George HW Bush with animal rights activists picketing nearby quipped, but let me assure you and this fine Tom Turkey that he will not end up on anyone's dinner table, not this guy. He's get granted a presidential pardon as of uh, right now and allow him to live out his days 
on a children's farm not far from here, the White House Historical Society recalls. Well, the custom of sending turkeys to the White House is an old one, dating back to the 1870s when poultry king Horace Voss would send his birds, but many former leaders of the free world actually ate the turkeys instead of setting them free. However, some presidents, including Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, did spare a few fowls uh, in their day. Harry S. Truman, too, was rumored to have uh, saved a few birds in his day, although his presidential library dispelled those claims. Those rumors uh, most likely stem from Truman being the first president to be presented with a turkey by the NFT, the National Turkey Federation or Federation of Turkeys, in 1947. The annual event has been a tradition ever since, although it's not clear what the fate was of every turkey presented. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Thursday, of course, is Thanksgiving. And so our plan here on the Georgine Rice Show tomorrow is to offer a Thanksgiving special. Hope you will enjoy that, giving us a little history and perspective as we're winding our way through some of that today. And then on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we're going to share the legend of Squanto, which has become something of a tradition here as well. So if you're looking for something related to the occasion, you might want to tune in from four to six to hear the Focus on the Family Legend of Squanto program that will play here on the Georgine Rice Show. Then on Friday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show. So I'm looking forward to uh, giving you an opportunity to hear some of the interviews that have been selected for your listening pleasure. As for me and my house, I'm going to be hosting Thanksgiving dinner this year. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to pull it off. Dan Rice picked up a turkey midday today, so at least we've got the bird But I've yet to do any of the shopping for any of the rest of the stuff. I haven't made any pies. I haven't baked anything. That's all going to have to be done, well, Thursday morning. Because, as you might recall, I'm part of the singing Christmas tree. And we began rehearsing at the Keller Auditorium last night. Well, I shouldn't say we, because the uh, singing Christmas tree members have been at the Keller for a couple of days setting everything up. They've been blocking uh, the performance and all of that, which means staging how things are going to uh, to go. Uh, But the first... Full rehearsal began last night. That will continue tonight and tomorrow night. We'll all take uh, Thanksgiving Day off. And, of course, the singing Christmas tree, as is the tradition, will begin uh, midday Friday for the first and opening performance of the 2018 season. I think it's the 65th year of the Portland singing Christmas tree. It's a great time for you to pick up tickets if you haven't already done so. But I want to mention that it's this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then the following weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then the singing Christmas tree is a memory. So if you're planning to come, I don't want to run into you at Fred Myers or J.C. Penney's and hear, oh, I'm planning to go to the singing Christmas tree. And then I have to tell you crestfallen that you've already missed it. So be in touch with the uh, singing Christmas tree office, get your tickets. And as we mentioned in my conversation with Wes a couple of days ago, they have lowered the ticket prices all across the board uh, so you can enjoy some savings this year. So Make note of that. Say a prayer for me as I endeavor to put a a full Thanksgiving dinner on the table with very little time uh, and no food yet purchased. Well, Thanksgiving is a time to be thankful. Enjoy food and, well, prank your parents. There's a new trend called the Turkey Challenge. Maybe you've fallen prey to it. It's taken over social media ahead of the holiday with people texting their parents and their grandparents asking how to cook a 25-pound turkey 
in the microwave. Well, it is, as I mentioned, the turkey challenged. Uh, The array of responses are then shared online, and younger people, of course, laugh at the older people who may have taken the question seriously. While most parents uh, were pretty straight up shocked by their kids' stupidity, others offered surprisingly helpful tips. Uh, One Alexa writes this, I was joking with my family and texted them asking how long to microwave a whole turkey, a whole turkey for... Now, I wouldn't have said it that way, but we learned yesterday that you can have a dangling participle. Uh, she writes, my mom freaked out, but she didn't even call me to discuss. She just bought a ham and overnighted it from Miami to Memphis. This joke went extremely well for me, she writes. I'm guessing Alexa is either a college student or just lives out of town. Another says, tried the whole ask your mom how long to microwave a 25-pound turkey for. This is what I got. couple of smiles and hashtag blessed. The only thing that came to my mind was who's going to marry you? Christina's mother wrote back. Another says, uh, made my mom question her entire parenthood, I think he meant parenting, uh, during the hashtag turkey challenge. Well, it went on from there. If you get the, uh, the question posed to you, now you're in the know, and you'll impress your, uh, your kids and grandkids by simply pointing out, I'm not going to be a party to this prank. One of the biggest potential dangers, uh, by the way, if you're thinking about actually cooking a turkey, not in the microwave, but in the conventional or convection oven, uh, or perhaps deep frying. I understand that's a pretty uh, popular thing to do. Although do it outside and not indoors. Many of houses burned down. I won't go into that. Anyway, one of the biggest potential dangers of eating an undercooked turkey is the risk of salmonella and other bacteria. In fact, we mentioned earlier in the program, they're telling us that certain lettuces should be avoided for that very reason. Well, each year in the United States, roughly 1.2 million people are sickened by salmonella, while an estimated 23,000 are actually hospitalized. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's nothing like bringing up disaster in the middle of a Thanksgiving talk. Well, a turkey is ready to eat when its internal temperature reaches 165 degrees. Now, by the way, when it reaches that internal temperature and you take it out of the oven, it continues to cook and it ends up at about 170. Um, a, a thermometer is the only surefire way to make sure your bird is thoroughly cooked. It should be placed in three places, in the innermost part of the thigh, the innermost part of the wing, and the thickest part of the breast. So there you have it. Your guests will go home with a smile on their face rather than doubled over. Despite popular belief, a turkey is not necessarily ready to come out of the oven if its juices are running clear. It's a bit of an old wives' tale. It certainly will when it's done, but that's not the telltale sign. Uh, Ben Chapman, who's a food safety specialist and assistant professor of food science at North Carolina State University, uh, says color is not an indicator of safety or doneness. So put the thermometer where it belongs And you and your guests will enjoy a wonderful day together. Well, of course, Thursday, Americans will gather around the dinner table to celebrate Thanksgiving. For those familiar with the holiday's historical roots, the day invokes the spirit of gratitude. The pilgrims of Plymouth, Massachusetts and Wampanoag people displayed uh, when they celebrated the first Thanksgiving in 1671. Families across America go around the table following the popular hymns instruction Count your blessings, name them one by one. Yet most of us miss one of the original purposes of Thanksgiving, observing a day of penitential prayer for America. So as you're digesting your turkey, as you're watching football, you might want to take just a few moments to pray for the nation. 
I mean, it's not as if we actually need to be prayed for as a country. Our nation's leaders are divided in a most violent way. It's certainly not the most they've ever been. But in our lifetime, in my lifetime, we haven't seen quite what we are witnessing today. We have a 24-hour news cycle that foments that kind of division and uh, hatred and, and so on. So we as a nation need the prayers of those who believe in a God who is sovereign And so I would encourage you to make that a part of your Thanksgiving Day. If you care about the future of the country and the opportunities we have enjoyed to worship freely and to share our faith freely, that may uh, may not be the case moving forward. So let's be sure to pray. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us tomorrow for our Thanksgiving special and on Thursday for some special Thanksgiving programming and have a great Thanksgiving. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.